we are designed to encounter each other in real time and space. We're not designed to uh, primarily encounter each other virtually. You're listening to the Christian Civics Podcast, exploring how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics, and it is great to be back. Uh, We haven't really talked or thought about this podcast in terms of seasons, but we've been on a break for the last three months, so this is, come on, it's basically the start of a new season, right? Um, And the last few months while we've been on hiatus, they've actually been pretty busy behind the scenes, but God willing, there's going to be plenty of time to talk about that later. For now, let's get right into this week's episode. Our guest this week is Dr. Kurt Thompson. Dr. Thompson's a psychiatrist in Falls Church, Virginia. He's also an author, and we'll have information on a couple of his books at the end of the episode. And he's the founder of Being Known LLC and the Center for Being Known. And that's an organization that develops resources that help train uh, leaders about the intersection between interpersonal neurobiology and Christian spiritual formation. Now, I know what you're thinking. What the heck is interpersonal neurobiology? And what does it have to do with the kinds of things we usually talk about on the Christian Civics podcast? We're going to jump into the conversation right as Dr. Thompson starts digging into what the phrase interpersonal neurobiology means. So I won't go into too much detail. But in short, it's the study of how our brains and minds work when we're interacting with other people. If you've been reading our blog for a while, or if you've ever come to one of our classes, you know that even though it's a pretty academic-sounding topic, this is actually pretty important for us to get a handle on if we want to demonstrate a uniquely Christian confidence and patience in the public square. There's a blog post I wrote for the Christian Civics blog a while back, for instance, where I talked specifically about how we tried to take advantage of the neuroscience of fear when I was working on campaigns. But the understanding of how our brains work, of how we're crafted and how we're made to function, has gotten so much richer, even in just the past few years. So I wanted to have Dr. Thompson on so that he could help us understand our own biological responses to hard conversations from a Christian perspective. And one of the things you'll see is that, yes, he's definitely a doctor. He's definitely wired for science. But he's also always coming back to how his Christian faith can inform his work as a doctor and how his work as a man of science can actually inform and enrich his uh, spiritual life, his trust in Jesus. So we're going to jump into the conversation right as Dr. Thompson starts explaining what the phrase interpersonal neurobiology means and why it's important for Christians to remember that our minds are part of our bodies. He has a lot of great insight about what these big ideas he's researching mean for our relationships in the church, for the way we take in information about politics, for the way we learn to think about people who don't vote the same way we do or who don't think the same way we do. Later in the episode, we'll come together in prayer, and then we'll have some announcements about upcoming events and chances to meet me and my co-founder later this spring. Looking forward to getting to a lot of that with you later, but for now, 
Let's jump right into the conversation, and I hope you stick around. Use those words explicitly interpersonal, meaning that we find that the mind isn't just something that is limited to the brain or even to the body or even to one person, that it is an interpersonal phenomenon. And neurobiology, of course, refers to this notion that we're talking about ourselves as embodied biological beings. And so we think about the mind in terms of it being an embodied and relational system. And as we look at the different aspects of it, especially through the lens of a Christian anthropology, we come to find out that the neuroscience that is encaptured in this field of interpersonal neurobiology uh, really reflects and also energizes uh, the biblical narrative, everything from Genesis to Revelation and everything in between. And so it's, it's an exciting time to be in the field of neuroscience uh, as a person who's a follower of Jesus, um, because as we read about in the account in the book of Acts, that uh, God never leaves himself without a witness. Mm. And at a time when uh, we seem to be hungering and thirsting for fresh witness to the story of the gospel, um, and at a time when people are seemingly paying a lot of attention to notions of neuroscience, uh, the brain's a very sexy organ these days, um, it would appear that um, these discoveries that we're making um, are clearly ways for God to return our attention to the gospel itself, uh, to that story which the neuroscience itself um, seems to have... Uh, I've been able to affirm and energize. Um, I'm glad you brought up the idea of being embodied, because from a lot of what you had started out saying, I could imagine some people hearing that and saying that it sounds maybe ivory tower, maybe irrelevant to how they actually live their day-to-day life, or maybe kind of crunchy or new agey or a little bit more abstract than they like to think about. Um, But can you just for a minute or two share a little bit more about what you mean by the mind is embodied? Sure. Um, I think think it's also important to first of all pause and just say that we often uh, are unaware that we live in a cultural milieu. We live within a world that has a, a dominant plausibility structure, as Michael Polanyi would say, um, as Leslie Newbigin would point out, uh, that uh, lets us live as if there are these two different realms. There's the realm of the measurable uh, material world. Uh, that's the realm that science has all authority. And then there's this realm of kind of the abstract, the feeling realm, the thinking realm, this realm that's out there where we also tend to place spirituality. And um, this notion didn't begin with Descartes, but Descartes didn't do us any favors in articulating a way in which we can separate the world into the world that thinks and feels and senses. And then there's the world over here that we can measure with science. And of course, uh, unfortunately, for many of us in the church, we have kind of followed this Cartesian dualism to its natural endpoints, which are that um, as far as our sense of spirituality is concerned, because we can't measure it in a test tube, it becomes easy for others who uh, don't really know much about that to just simply um, deny its existence because we can't measure it because science has become the authority for how we come to know anything that we know. 
what is so striking about that whole notion is that uh, thinking about the world in that way would be completely confusing to a first century Hebrew. Um, this notion that we're living in these separate worlds, that there's a spiritual world and a material world, wouldn't make any sense to a Jew in Jesus' time, because they lived in a world in which all of experience belonged in the spiritual realm, including our embodied experiences, which is why the Ten Commandments were so deeply uh, immersed in the notion of embodiment. Right? What do we do with our bodies? What's significant about uh, the neuroscience of today, it's really telling us that, for instance, the mind, as much as I, many people of you ask them, well, what is the mind? They'll tell you, well, it's the thing with which I think, or I feel, or I sense things, when you point out to them that if you don't have your body, you can't sense things. If you ask someone, how do you know that you're anxious? Well, they'll tell you, because my heart rate goes up and my palms get sweaty. We know that we don't have a mind if we don't have a body, which of course points to the second chapter of Genesis, where God created man from the dust of the earth. We are dirt and we are breath. And if we don't have dirt, then we don't have human beings. If we're gonna love God with all of our mind, that mind is an embodied feature. But my body itself doesn't even have a sense of itself apart from interacting relationally with other embodied minds. That embodied phenomenon needs interaction with other people in order for it to have any sense of itself in the world. We are living in, I think everyone can agree, and I think maybe the Marist poll that was just released this week would probably uh, back up, we are in a very politically polarized era and a culturally polarized era. Uh, but relationships in the church are supposed to cross whatever the biggest cultural boundaries of the day are. Man, woman, Jew, Greek, free slave. Uh, today, that would be institutionalist or nihilist, Republican or Democrat, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, but we've all, I'm sure, maybe it's just me, but I'm guessing most other people have felt kind of that kick of panic when you're talking to someone and you realize that they disagree with you about something that you think is either really important or really obvious. What's actually happening in an embodied way in those moments? What's going on neurologically or physically or biologically in our mind when we confront someone who's on the other side of some issue and we start to seize up? Well, I think the first thing that is um, uh, important to recognize is um, that w when we talk about our living in a polarized moment in history, um, that that polarized moment didn't just show up out of the blue, you know, one day, um, that we've gradually been moving in this direction. Number one, I think that um, it's, uh, it, it is not the primary thing, but it's no... I think it's no accident that it, the degree of polarization is taking place at the same time that our technology is both um, creating these uh, pseudo-connections that are actually, in fact, separating us farther and farther because they give us the illusion of connection when, in mm -hmm. fact, they're doing the very opposite. And so um, whenever we, you know, and, and you use the word when we confront, even even our language um, speaks to the anxiety that we experience when we are left to our own devices. And by, when I say they are our own devices, I mean um, we uh, choir members are listening to our own particular uh, choir leaders, our own particular preachers, whether those are political preachers or religious preachers, 
telling us what we want to hear and demonizing other people with whom we're not having any embodied encounters. So even when it comes to then having an encounter with someone with whom we have differences, we use words like we're confronting as opposed to I'm having a dinner with or I'm having an encounter with or I'm having an engagement with. We use language that necessarily conjures in our mind Mm -hmm. embodied neuro-anxiety-provoking experience. And so we get more anxious. And the more anxious we become, the more my brain tends to want to move away from the anxiety-provoking stimulus. And so if I'm different from someone and I feel anxious in their presence, I will do whatever it is that I can to protect myself, as opposed to moving in a vulnerable fashion toward that person. Of course, the gospel not just the gospel that we read about in the four holy gospels, but the gospel embodied even in the Genesis account really tells us that flourishing takes place in the context in which infinitely different people come together in vulnerable ways. This is what we read in Genesis 2.25, when the man and the woman were naked and unashamed. For all of our enmity between blacks and whites, between Jews and Arabs, between Democrats and Republicans in our country, there is no enmity that has a greater history than men and women. There's no demographic group which has both more things in common. We all have two eyes, two ears, nose, mouth, and so forth. But who, where we are different, are more infinitely different. And the biblical narrative is suggesting that God has made us explicitly to flourish in the context in which which people who are vastly different create the most beautiful, powerful, durable creations when they come together in a vulnerable fashion and in which shame is not allowed to be part of the conversation. The man and the woman were naked, and the Hebrew here is more so explicitly talking about their spiritual condition, talking about their vulnerability than they are just talking about their physical nakedness, when they are naked and they are unashamed. And so one of the first things we would say that's happening is that biologically we are literally walling ourselves off from others, becoming more biologically isolated, which necessarily increases my anxiety, and it creates a snowball effect. It also then creates a narrative within my own mind about who the other person is in which I necessarily demonize them without taking the steps of vulnerably moving toward them, as the biblical narrative suggests that we should be doing with everyone. You had mentioned that you think it's a little bit dangerous to even start um, taking in ideas from people without actually having an embodied encounter with them. Can you talk a little bit more about why that goes against design for us? We are designed to encounter each other in real time and space. We're not designed to um, primarily encounter each other virtually, for mm-hmm. instance. And uh, a large part, I think, of what what's happening now is that uh, we are gathering our sense of the other— not through any personal encounter with them, but through media in some way, shape, or form, whether it's reading the Washington Post, whether it's reading Facebook, the particular news outlet that you listen to. We, we attend a church uh, that has, uh, albeit imperfectly, has worked really hard over its 
history to uh, envision what racial reconciliation looks like. And uh, one of the things that we've learned at Washington Community Fellowship is that racial reconciliation isn't something that you talk about. It's something that you must do. And you don't do it by having conversations about it or having guest speakers come in and talk about it or just preaching about it. You do it by making friends with someone of a different ethnicity. That's how you do it. And there isn't any other way to do that. Now, there are other things that you can add on to that. But if I'm not in the business of seeking out and practicing being in relationship with someone who is of a different ethnicity, racial reconciliation remains just this abstract thing that I might like even to talk about doing, but I'm not really doing. And when you finally begin to do it, when you finally have those relationships, you find that those relationships are uh, difficult and those relationships are beautiful. And this is, I would suggest, a reflection of what God has intended in Genesis chapter 2. It's what he intends throughout the book of Galatians, that Paul writes this notion that when we are reconciled to God, there is an inevitability about our reconciliation to others with whom we are most different as well. And so when we encounter people who are different on that fundamental level from us or disagree different from us in some significant way that is important to us and we start to feel ourselves walling off uh, how can we counteract that any do you have any tips or any encouragement for people who feel that happening in themselves and want to push through it or want to overcome it want to uh, remain in relationship with people who might initially provoke that response in them? Well, I mean, uh, one tip would be uh, call our office and uh, set up an appointment <laughs> and uh, we'll help you out for a fee. Um, I think, uh, you know, what, what uh, in some respects, I, I would say that what we're dealing with now in 2018 is no different than what Paul was dealing with in the church at Galatia in the first century. These, these, these are not new human problems. Um, we sometimes think they're new because we've lived with this illusion that the United States is a place where we've kind of all gotten along. Like, we probably haven't gotten along any better 100 years, 150 years ago than we do now, I mean, in some respects. Um, there are certain things, I think, that tend to make it feel like it's being heightened and sharpened, and that may all be true to some degree. But I think in some respects we're talking about the human condition and uh, I think that uh, the biblical narrative certainly has uh, wisdom for us in this regard. Um, I think, practically speaking, one of the things that neuroscience is teaching us is, A, when I am in distress um, about these kinds of things that we're talking about here, um, one of the things that my brain needs more than anything else is courage to connect with the other with whom there is difference. And that courage is not something that I'm just going to necessarily manufacture all by myself. I'm going to need the courage of being connected to other people. And so uh, one of the things that uh, we, when we talk about a tip is to say, gosh, is there one person with whom you have a difference? One person that you think you have a difference, that you have some connection with, literally like I, I know them in my church or I... Uh, I, I work with them at the office, in which I say to them, I'd like to have lunch with you. I'd like to have dinner with you. I'd like to have coffee with you. I'm not just going to sit down and have a conversation, but I'm going to do something even physically that we meaningfully share, because we both have to eat. Let's sit down. And, and one of the things that I would say, and this is where things get scary, is to say, I'd really like 
to be able to have a relationship with you that really flourishes, that really works well. One of the things that we can end up doing is focusing so much on where things are wrong that we lose track of the question of what is it that we really, first of all, want? What is our desire? One of the first things that goes when we become anxious is we're, we become so uh, necessarily attuned to our protection and survival that we stop paying attention to what is it that I really want in the big picture. And what I really want, I would think even with someone with whom I differ politically, what I really want is I want to love them and want to be loved by them, even in differences. In fact, I would love nothing more than for someone to say to me, Kurt, I know this part about you, and that either that's a broken part or a different part or whatever, and I still really want to be in your life. I mean, this is what Jesus comes to all of us and says, right? He says, like, I know who you are, and you can't make me leave the room, to which we don't know what to do with this. Someone who wants to love us this deeply, even knowing the parts about ourselves that we hate the most. Now we're talking about parts about us that someone else might disagree with, and in some respects, we might say might hate, or at least we think they do, until we sit and have lunch together. And I say, I really want our relationship to flourish. Well, what do we do when someone says that to us instead of, like, I want to talk about where I'm right and where you're wrong? And so if we're, first of all, I would say we want to ask the question, what do we really want? What do we really want beyond these differences that we have? A second tip, if you will, is it requires practice but concrete, necessary, embodied practice uh, in our being able to ask the questions of, tell me what it is, tell me about your story. You see, no one thinks anything politically that is not wrapped in their experience, not wrapped up in their story. And I get so quickly drawn to wanting to like uh, look at how you intellectually think about what we should do with economics that I don't I'm not. I'm no longer curious about how did you get there. Tell me about. The, tell me about your journey. Tell me about you. Where did, did you grow up in a family like this? Did you grow up in a family that was different than this? I want to know who you are. And one of the things we come to find out is that the more of you that I come to know, not just about this thing that you think, but especially what you feel and where you feel vulnerable. The more I encounter that, if I have any empathic neuron in my brain, the more empathy begins to be mobilized. I come to know that you're not just a Democrat, but you're a person with like parents and a spouse or maybe kids. And I can guarantee you that some parts of those, of those parts are going to be broken and hard and difficult. And they're going to be difficult and broken in very similar ways as they are to me. And before you know it, we come to find that there are parts about our lives that we share, especially the painful parts, in which we have far more in common than the parts about our lives in which I've imagined are so, so starkly different. And there are going to be the differences that separate us forever. And the more about you that I come to know that is not just about your political thinking, but that is about the rest of your robust life, uh, the more I'm able to then begin to hear more about what it is that you think and how that has come to this place and vice versa. And in this way, uh, I think that we come to find that we're building relationships that become more than just what we think politically. All right. That was 
part one of our interview with Dr. Kurt Thompson. What do I mean by part one? Don't worry about it. We'll get to that later. Uh, there was a lot Dr. Thompson shared in there that I was really grateful to hear, and a few big questions he tossed out that, honestly, I don't really like my answers to. Uh, the big theme, the big idea from this part of the interview was that it's important for us to actually interact with people who are different from us in real life. Uh, he was saying that God made people different from one another intentionally so that we can come together and create enduring and beautiful things when we reflect his image back at one another in different ways or when we help one another reflect him more clearly into the world. We're not going to function properly if we're just having Facebook conversations about people we disagree with or if we're occasionally tweeting with someone about something we disagree about. We have to actually interact with one another in a real, personal, face-to-face, he used the language of embodied way. Near the end of the interview, Dr. Thompson said that we have to ask ourselves what we really want. And honestly, I don't want to do that. It's frustrating, and it's uncomfortable, and it makes me feel bad sometimes. But we also want Jesus to be glorified, and we also want his church to function the way it's really meant to. So, as C.S. Lewis put it, it might not be that our desire for comfort or safety or just easy relationships are too strong. It might be that our desire to be a real, healthy, properly functioning body of Christ is too weak. And this isn't just important for our own spiritual growth. It is important for our spiritual growth, but it's not just important for our own spiritual growth. It's also an essential part of helping our friends and family and neighbors learn the power of the gospel in this time and in this place. We have to, in the church, strive to have relationships that people outside of the church can't understand. Relationships that don't make sense to people who haven't experienced the gospel. Even for those of us who have experienced the gospel, those relationships are hard. And developing them and learning to be good at them is actually a skill. I'm glad that right at the end of that section of the interview, Dr. Thompson mentioned that it takes practice. It's okay to not be good at it at first. The important thing is to persist at it, to learn how to do it better. All over the New Testament, Paul and the other epistle writers keep using sports metaphors to explain what it's like to live a godly life, to live in line with the gospel. They talk about running or boxing or how athletes train to get better at what they're doing and how it's important to be deliberate about competing in line with the rules of the sport. Now, I'm not a big sports guy, but I feel like you don't have to be to get the point of uh, those biblical metaphors. Politically cross-cultural relationships in the church, they're not different from any other aspect of our discipleship. Some people are already good at it, or they have the talent or the temperament or the relational skills to be good at it, and just haven't tried yet. When those people come to Christ, 
this is going to end up being an aspect of discipleship that they're going to be really good at right away. They're going to be naturals at it. But most people in the U.S. aren't wired that way, and we're not taught those skills culturally. So trying to develop those kinds of relationships in the church is going to be hard for us. When we find out that it's hard, that shouldn't scare us, it shouldn't surprise us, and it shouldn't disappoint us. The fact that it's hard doesn't mean we don't have to get better at it. It means we have to push forward in it. Maybe one of the things that Dr. Thompson said in there that's going to stick with me for the longest is when he characterized the way Jesus looks at us and what Jesus says and feels when he looks at us. And he characterized it as Jesus saying to us, I know who you are, and you can't make me leave the room. There's nothing you can be so bad at, no failure you can exhibit that's so great that it's going to make me want to distance myself from you. We have to get better at these kinds of relationships, but we have the freedom to not be great at them right away. We have the freedom to actually try and fail a few times. If we aren't at a point yet where we can have authentic, deep, rich fellowship with people who don't share our politics in the church, and we're not at a point where we can confuse the non-Christians around us by demonstrating that fellowship, we can at least confuse the non-Christians around us by fostering a desire for it, by demonstrating a persistent attempt to grow into it. Let's take a moment to pray together. Heavenly Father, you revealed yourself to humanity in the form of your Son, and testified to us about him through your Holy Spirit. And now you entrust us to be his hands, his feet, his body in this world. Thank you for that honor. Thank you for that privilege. Thank you for that challenge. We pray not just for ourselves, but for our brothers and sisters in our churches, and for our neighbors in our civic communities, that we can be both grateful and humbled by this gift of responsibility. I confess that there are often dimensions of this that I buck against. I want to be in a church full of people who challenge me in some ways, but not in others. I don't want to have my thoughts tested, or my commitments questioned, or my values scrutinized. And my guess is that deep down, I'm not alone. Search our hearts and know us. Show us any false way that is in us, and lead us in the way of life everlasting. Help us to see and understand what we want, and then refine our desires. Give us a glimpse of what our relationships with the people who we currently consider to be our political opponents will be like when the kingdom comes, and stir our hearts with a desire to see more. Give us a foretaste of your kingdom and a deeper thirst for a bigger drink. Show us what we actually want. Help us to repent where we need to and teach us how to live out of better desires. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, who is the desire of nations. Amen. Thank you very much for joining us this week. But before we go, we have some notes about how you can follow up on some of the ideas in this podcast and some announcements about some upcoming events. 
first. If you want to hear more from Dr. Thompson, you're in luck. There's more to this interview. As a lot of you might know, our interviews are typically pretty long, and then before we release episodes of the podcast, we usually hack them down pretty heavily. We cut them down from usually 60 minutes or 90 minutes, all the way down to just 15 or 20. Sometimes we might send another 5 or 10 minutes out to our donors, but for the most part, once we cut it down, that's it. Well, we're going to start trying to do some things differently in 2018, and one of the things we're going to try is taking some of our interviews and breaking them up into smaller chunks instead of just editing them down. We're going to try that out with Dr. Thompson, and if it goes well, we'll try it out with some other interviews in the future. So look for part two of our conversation with Dr. Thompson coming out sometime in the next few weeks. Next, this past October, we partnered with the international Christian organization Q Ideas to host an event in Washington, D.C. called Q Commons, Healing Our Divided Nation. We released some highlights from it in an earlier episode of the podcast, and on April 7th, that's going to be a Saturday morning, we're actually going to be hosting a follow-up event specifically about how Christians can be agents of healing in our divided political climate. So if you're in the D.C. area and you were able to join us for that, or if you're in the D.C. area and you missed it but still want to hop in on this next event, then save the date now. That's April 7th, Saturday morning. And go to our website, christiancivics.org, and sign up for our newsletter. If you do that, then you'll be the first to know when we open registration. Also, in the interview with Dr. Thompson, we briefly brought up a Marist poll about political polarization in our country. We're going to have a link to that poll on our website in the show notes for this episode. Uh, And along with that, we'll have some more information about how you can learn more about Dr. Thompson and his work on the web. We'll have a link to his website, beingknown.com, and links to his two current books, Anatomy of the Soul and The Soul of Shame. Lastly, Dr. Thompson also mentioned some of the priority that his church has placed on fostering racially cross-cultural relationships. If you're interested in racial reconciliation in the church, you might already know about the MLK 50 conference that's going to be happening in Memphis this April. It's hosted by the Gospel Coalition and the Southern Baptist Convention, and it features a pretty big list of speakers. And if you're planning on attending that conference, you should know that some members of the Christian Civics team are also going to be there, and we would love to meet you. Email me at rick at christiancivics.org, and we'll try to find some time for either a group meetup or just to grab a bite to eat to unpack some of what we're hearing at the conference together. Um, and also a chance to share a little bit more about who we are and what we're doing and learn more about who you are and where you're coming from. All right, that's it for this week. We're aiming to be back in about two weeks. And in the meantime, visit our website, christiancivics.org. If you want to learn more about our work, empowering the church to be lamps on stands across the political spectrum. <laughs>